All right, let's uh, turn to Psalm 100. We are jumping back into our series on 20 chapters of the Old Testament that we think are pretty important. All of them are important, obviously, but, uh, but these are our benchmarks where uh, we feel like it would be um, really important to know uh, what Psalm 100 uh, teaches us. Why, why is Psalm 100 significant? So if you've got your place uh, either in the Bible or you can turn in the, um, the bullets and you've got the text there. And uh, let's stand in honor of God's Word. Uh, it's a short psalm, but pretty important. Make a joyful noise to the Lord all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into His presence with singing. Know that the Lord, He is God. It is He who made us, and we are His. We are His people and the sheep of His pasture. Enter his gates with thanksgiving, his courts with praise. Give thanks to him, bless his name, for the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever, and his faithfulness to all generations. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Uh, thank you for how it clearly uh, communicates who you are and what your character is like uh, and what you expect for us, from us. Um, and what we're to be like. Uh, thank you for Jesus, the, the perfect picture of, of what you are and, and what you want for us. In his name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. <clears throat> um, some of you remember the, the days before, before these um, when we had actual telephones in our homes. Uh, some of you remember paying maybe your telephone bill to an organization called Bell something, Bell this, Bell Atlantic, you know, uh, et cetera. Uh, that company was named after a gentleman named Alexander Graham Bell, who invented these, well, not these, but the thing, the phone, the, th the, the phone thing. Um, in, in, what is it, uh, 1876, uh, he was giving a presentation to the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. And three days prior to that, he had filed for a patent, you know, basically for the telephone. Um, and what happened was he started playing this tune. Started playing Old One Hundredth. Uh, it's an it's a it's a hymn tune, and we've already sung it. All creatures that on earth do dwell, um, and and Old One Hundredth was the first, you know, sounds that that came through uh, a, a telephone. Apart from you know, in his lab, Watson, come here, I need you. But but that was the first demonstration. Uh, was was that uh, that tune, which in our hymnals. Uh, was originally uh, described as Old 100th because Louis Bourgeois in the 16th century came up with that tune and set uh, Psalm 100 uh, to that music. That's why we, we, we call it Old 100. Uh, Psalm 100 is, is important. Uh, it's, it's one of the most important psalms uh, in, in the, the Psalter. We could have turned to Psalm 23, we could have done Psalm 150 or you know, any of the other psalms, but but we chose Psalm 100 because there's something truly significant about uh, this psalm in that it's, it's so, um, you, many of you probably recognize it, 
And it's, and it's popular for a number of reasons. Not just simply because, well, it's, it's, a, it's a happy psalm. Um, it's, it's joyful. A lot of the psalms, I don't know if you've ever just kind of noticed as you've read through the, 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 the psalms before, the majority of them deal with sort of negative emotions. But Psalm 100 deals with, you know, sort of joy and gladness and those, those positive things. Um, it's, it's important not only because of, of, of its, how it you know, sounds in the Psalter, but in the whole Bible. It's, it's re- the reason why it's so popular is not only because it's, it's a happy psalm, but because it tells us about the character of God. It tells us about our you know, chief end. One of the, the biggest challenges that, that you and I face as Christians is not... Um, error and opposition out there in the world, it's, it's the assumptions and the errors that come from within. Uh, the, the things that we assume are true about God and about ourselves that actually aren't. Um, you know, we tend to think <laughs> that God is um, distant that God is emotionless, or if he does have emotions, that he is maybe grumpy or angry about, you know, things as they are. I mean, what God wouldn't, you know, have some concerns about what's going on on this, on this planet. What God wouldn't be upset about things that are happening around us. Based on these assumptions, then we further assume that that distant and, and you know, perhaps unhappy God would want us to be, you know, like him in being distant and unhappy ourselves. Um, we, we, here's what I mean. On the front of your bulletin, let me, let me show you this slide of this painting, is a, a painting I know you've seen before uh, called American Gothic. Uh, a fellow named Grant Wood painted this, this painting in Chicago in 1930. He, he entered it in a art competition, and he won third prize. He won the bronze medal and got 300 bucks uh, for, for this depiction of what a lot of people assume is a husband and wife. That's, I, I thought it was a husband and wife. It's a, it's a uh, farmer and his daughter, his adult daughter, probably his spinster daughter, right? Do they look happy? Why is it called American Gothic? Um, there's some things here in this painting that tell us, that reveal a lot about our assumptions about God and about ourselves, what God wants from us. We assume that if you're going to be serious about religion, that you have to be a serious person. We assume that, you know, th- th- this couple who they've got this, this uh, the reason why it's called American Gothic is because the window in the farmhouse, that's a real house, by the way, in Iowa. Uh, real house in Iowa that the artist saw, and he said, I'm going to put that in a painting, and he composed this, uh, this image of this, uh, you know, sort of family. And it's a Gothic window. You know, that pointed window exists in, in Gothic architecture all throughout Europe, uh, and then, and, and the funny thing was to put a gothic window like that in, a, in a, just a plain old farmhouse in the middle of Iowa. There's sort of an irony there. But it's a religious indication. And you've got this farmer, he's dressed in overalls, but he also has this dark jacket on either for, looks like it's, it's Sunday and, and he's putting on his Sunday best, or he almost looks clerical. Like he's got this buttoned up collar that looks like a cleric's collar. 
right? One of those, you know, um, Episcopal or Anglican collars that, that ministers sometimes wear. And you've got his, his adult daughter, and she almost looks like she's heading to, to a convent. Um, <clears throat> and, and their expressions are, are super happy. Um, <laughs> they, they, they just have that, that soberness and that, you know, seriousness that, 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 look, I mean, people made the association. They, they got it. They knew what Grant Wood was, was depicting because, you know, as this painting gained popularity very, very quickly, um, the, it, the image began to be printed in newspapers in New York and, and then the Chicago Evening Post and then in Boston and, you know, Kansas and Indianapolis all over, eventually in the Cedar Rapids Gazette back in Iowa where there was this backlash from Iowans you know, because he's depicting, you know, just good farm country, you know, people. And they are furious at their depiction as pinched, grim-faced, puritanical Bible thumpers, right? Like, you get it. That's our assumption about people who are serious about religion are, are just, you know, serious people and, and not nice, not, not the kind of people you want to be around. You don't want to go to dinner with them. All right. So apart from, from American Gothic, are, let's ask ourselves, are these assumptions about God and about us accurate? Is that who God is? Is God distant and grumpy? And does he want us to be distant and grumpy? Is, 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 he, is he dour? Is he, is, does he want us to be sour and all puckered and persnickety like, like that American Gothic um, family? Instead of making assumptions like that, we would be much better off going directly to, to God's revealed word about himself and about what he wants from us. And in this Bible, in places like Psalm 100, the reason why it's so important and so significant is that we find out that God is actually a joyful God who wants his people to be like him, <laughs> who, who would have the audacity to call us to a life of joy in him. So, you know, when you look on, furthermore on the front of the bulletin, every Sunday, you know, you, you see our purpose statement, and, and it begins, by God's grace, tabernacle lives for the enjoyment of God's glory, right? That's, that's why we're here. Uh, by, by His grace, He's called us together. He's made us a church, and our primary uh, calling, the, the very first thing that we need to be about is enjoying His glory. I don't know how many churches you've been a part of or whatever, um, but, but by God's grace, that's why he put the church on the earth. We're not unique in that. Every church ought to exist primarily for the enjoyment of his glory. And we didn't make this up. This isn't new to us. We're not clever. We're just trying to be faithful to what our fathers and mothers have been doing for generations. Uh, and, you know, this was encapsulated all the way back again in the, the 16th century um, when you get documents, uh, 17th century, documents like the Westminster Confession of Faith, you know, that our, our denomination's a confessional uh, denomination, means that we have standards that when, when uh, elders and deacons get ordained, we go, yeah, that's what we believe. That's the summary of our faith. And, and the very first question in the shorter catechism goes like this, what is the chief end of man? Man's chief end 
is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. That's why we're put on this planet, is to be in a relationship with God that is fundamentally about enjoying Him. Uh, and the, there's the shorter catechism, and then there's the larger catechism. The larger catechism expands on that question. The, the, the shorter catechism asks, what's the chief end of man? The larger catechism goes, what's the chief and highest end of man? And the answer in the larger catechism is man's chief and highest end is to glorify God. And in case you missed it in the shorter catechism, to enjoy him forever, the, the larger catechism says, and to fully enjoy him forever. <laughs> like we needed that explanation. We needed that, that augmentation and fully, fully enjoy him forever. Instead of making assumptions about what God is like and what he wants for us and what he wants for people who are serious about following him, when we go to the Bible, we find out what God is truly like and we find out that that the people who are serious about following him ought to be seriously joyful, like, like really characterized by joy. So we, we know this from Psalm 100. Look at verse 3. <clears throat> know that the Lord is God. He, he is God. It is he who made us. and We are his. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. So the Lord, the, the one who is worthy of, of joy and gladness. He is the one true God. He's the creator. He's the one who made us. And because we are his creations, we're his, his, his workmanship. Um, Ephesians 2 uses the language of we're his poetry or his masterpiece. He made us to do something. And that's what you see in verses 1 and 2. Verse 3, you know, gives us the foundation or the rationale for why we were to do these things that were in the earlier part of the psalm, which is to, to do what? Why did he make us? He made us to make a joyful noise to him. He made us to serve him with gladness. He made us to come into his presence with singing. God didn't make us with the thought that we should be miserable people. God didn't make us to be unhappy he made us to be joyful. You and I and all the people that on earth do dwell, as, as we, we just sang, were made for joy. Remember, um, I, don't, I can't remember where I was, but I, I do distinctly recall just hearing what, um, having an impression, like, like an experience of, of, of agreeing with what has universally been described as the saddest sound on earth. Just hearing a desperate child crying. Hearing a desperate child cry. It's the saddest sound on earth. And, and, and parents who can't do anything to make their child comforted or, or, or change the, the situation that brought about those tears, they enter into that sadness too. So if that's the saddest sound on earth, what's the happiest sound? 
One of the reasons why, why Jesus scolded the disciples, you know, for, for pushing the kids away, and he says, to, to such belongs the kingdom of God. And, and, if, and if you want to enter the kingdom of God, you have to, to change and become like little children. It's because little children just give vent to their joy without any inhibition. They don't have a governor on their, their, you know, their laughter. They're not thinking, oh, no, you know, am I gonna, who's going to watch? And who's going to think I'm silly or stupid or you know, whatever? They just, they just let it out. And that's the happiest sound on earth. It's just hearing somebody laugh. It's contagious. You know, when you think about how the fall affected humanity, how, you know, Satan and, and you know, sin enter the world, like, Satan's not a creator. All he, all he does, all he's able to do is take the good things that God made and then corrupt them. There's, there's nothing original about Satan. Did you, did, you, did you know that? Like, and so when you think about the other side of Eden, as, as Adam and Eve left Eden and, and crying and pain and death and sin entered the world, uh, all crying is is a corruption of laughter. God invented laughter. And sin corrupts it. They're, they're related, right? I mean, you're not sure when you're laughing and when you're crying sometimes. Uh, there was a beautiful book by Marilyn Robinson. And some of you read the, her book, Gilead. And um, she makes this observation uh, about, about laughter and about these two people who, uh, you know, the, the narrator sees laughing. And, and uh, you know, it goes, she says that grace has a, has a grand laughter in it. And it's an amazing thing to watch people laugh, the way it sort of, of takes them over. And sometimes they really do struggle with it. And, and I see that in church often enough. You know, somehow we've gotten this idea that you're not supposed to laugh in church, remember? I see that in church often enough, people trying to control their, their laughter, right? So I wonder <clears throat> what it is and where it comes from, and I wonder what it expands out of your system so that you have to do it until you're done. Have you ever tried to, to stop laughing? You can't do it. And you have to do it until you're done, like, like crying in a way, right, I suppose, except that laughter is much more easily spent uh, than, than crying. So God made us to laugh, right? That, that's His invention. He's our creator. He made us. He made us to enter his courts with praise and joy and gladness. And if we were made in the image of God, then what does that tell us about God's capacity for joy? If we're his image bearers, made to laugh, what does that tell us about, about the, the nature of heaven? That one of heaven's promises is that there will be no more crying so have you ever thought about how much joy and laughter there must be in heaven? Listen to, to, to Jesus talk about his purposes for us. He said in John 15 that, that these things I've spoken to you, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Uh, John Piper wrote a book called The Pleasures of God. It's kind of a, a provocative title, especially for people who are making assumptions about God who doesn't, you know, doesn't bother, doesn't condescend to things like pleasure. Yes, he does. And John Piper said that a great part 
of God's glory is his happiness. It was inconceivable to the Apostle Paul that God could be denied infinite joy and still be all-glorious. God couldn't be all-glorious if he was not infinitely joyful. To be infinitely glorious was to be infinitely happy. It is good news that God is gloriously happy. No one would want to spend eternity with an unhappy God, right? That's, the, that's part of the good news of the gospel, is, is that God is, is a happy, infinitely happy being. And this all sounds good. This all sounds great, right, so far. Um, until until you, 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 you kind of dig a little deeper. So I, ho- I hope this has been helpful for you so far, but, but let's, let's just kind of address there's, there's a problem. There's a problem here uh, in, in Psalm 100 and other places that deal with God's, you know, calling us to, to enter into his gates with praise and to be joyful and all that, all, all that language. Listen, look again at verses 2 and then at 4. So verse 2 says, Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with singing. And verse 4, enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him and bless his name. Um, there was a, a, a book by C.S. Lewis called Reflections on the Psalms. And so he does some meditations on different psalms. And one of those chapters is called A Word About Praising. And uh, it's an incredibly important chapter uh, a, a book and, and a little lecture if you ever want to, to read it, a word about praising. Um, and, and here's how C.S. Lewis describes the problem that, that's in Psalm 100, other places too. He says that when I first began to, to draw near to belief in God, and, and even for some time after, it, uh, th- after that belief had been given to me, I found a stumbling block and the demand so clamorously made by all religious people that we should praise God. Still more in the suggestion that God himself demanded it. The Psalms were especially troublesome in this way. It was was hideously like saying what I want most is to be told that I am good and great. Do you you see where Lewis is going with this? The Psalms keep, you know, it's God speaking. And he keeps saying to his people, come into my courts with praise and bless the Lord and tell me my name is great, right? Right? So Lewis is going, that's a problem. It was extremely distressing, is what he said. Why does God command our praise? Why does he need us to tell him how wonderful he is? Can you, um, can you imagine if, if verses 2 and 4 of Psalm 100 were, were autobiographical about any of us? Rephrase it. Re- re- look at it again and, and, and listen to, to it rephrased like in, in the first person for any of us. Serve me with gladness. <laughs> Come into my presence with singing. 
Enter my gates with thanksgiving, my courts with praise. Give thanks to me and bless my name. Have you ever, have you ever met somebody like that? Just a pure, unadulterated narcissist? <laughs> That's crazy talk. You would be right to run from that person. But the weird thing is that we don't run from them. We, we question the sanity of, of the person who might demand such, such praise and admiration, but, but how many people voluntarily do this for other people? I mean, how many lovers come into the presence of their beloved with singing? How many love songs have been written, right? Where we do that voluntarily. And, and how many uh, NBA and Wimbledon fans enter their courts with praise? Uh, how many NASCAR and PGA fans bless the name of their favorite driver? Get it? NASCAR and PGA? Okay, I'll let you think about that. Uh, we, we can't help it. We can't help but praise and adore and glorify you know, the, the, the things that we love, the people that we admire, and so on. We were made to worship. We were made to find our joy and our happiness outside ourselves, like in others, other things and, and other people. So, you know, I, I'm going to quote Lewis again. Forgive me for, for doing it at length, but it, it is, it's incredibly insightful. So again, I want to commend to you, re read his essay, A Word About Praising. He, he goes on and he says, you know, first he, he, he saw this problem and it was, it was, it was tr terribly, you know, frustrating and, and troubling to him, you know, God demanding our praise. And he starts, you know, finding the solution. He starts working it out. And he goes, the most obvious fact about praise, whether of God or anything, strangely escaped me, you know, when I was all vexed about this. Strangely escaped me. The world rings with praise. Praise of weather, wines, dishes, food, you know, actors, motors, horses, colleges, countries, historical personages, children, Flowers, mountains, rare stamps, rare beetles, even sometimes politicians and scholars. I had not noticed how the humblest and at the same time the most balanced and capacious minds praised most while the cranks, the misfits and malcontents praised least except where intolerably adverse circumstances interfere, praise almost seems to be inner health made audible. Like the people who praise the most are the healthiest people. They're the happiest people. They're the most joyful people. And, and Lewis goes on and he says, my whole more general difficulty about the praise of God depended on my absurdly denying to us as regards the supremely valuable, what we delight to do and indeed what we can't help doing about everything else that we value. 
So it's, it's not so bizarre that God would call us to do what we were made to do, to praise and to glorify and to enjoy things that are outside ourselves. And it's healthy to praise what is praiseworthy. Now, what if, <clears throat> what if we end up praising what is only mediocre? Or uh, what if we end up praising what's bad? What, what if we get it backwards? What if, if, what if in our finiteness, what, what if in our fallenness, we miss what's most praiseworthy? What if we fail to praise what is best? We get what is good, but we miss what is best. This is where God's call to praise Him is actually merciful and kind. For if God is truly the, the highest holiness, if He's the, the greatest good, if He's the, the most beautiful being, then we would be the poorer if we missed that, if we didn't praise Him, right? We would be pitied like the person who went to get popcorn, popcorn's a good thing, but he went to get popcorn and, and missed the, the game-winning goal, right? Oh, what happened? I missed it. You know, or, you know, you're, you're hungry and you fill, up, you fill up on saltines, and then somebody goes, what are you eating those for? We're, we're heading off to the gourmet buffet. And they're like, oh, sorry. I'm full. Right? Like that's a, you, you're, you're sad for that person, in a sense. God's merciful and kind to say, you are made for joy. You are made for happiness. And that happiness finds its consummation and its fullness in expressing it. And, and if you want to experience the greatest joy and the greatest happiness, you need to focus your joy and your contentment and your adoration on the greatest being. There's nothing greater than God. There's nothing narcissistic about his call for us to praise him. It's honest and it's true and it's kind and it's merciful. However, our, our, our situation is not merely that we would be missing out on genuine joy if God didn't call us into his courts to praise him. A great part of our sin is our refusal to come in. It's our refusal to find our joy in what God enjoys. It's, it's our stubbornly refusing to laugh along with God, because we think there's more joy to be found outside his gates than inside his gates. Like this ties in really nicely to what Ben Spivey was preaching about last week in Luke 15, right? The younger son is saying, Dad, I don't want anything to do with you. There's no joy in this home. I'm going to go find my joy somewhere else. But the gospel tells us that God is good, that, that he rejoices over having us home again, that that, it, it, that Jesus is our, our good shepherd and that he is not content to let our hearts wander off uh, looking for joy apart from him. But as a good shepherd, he will love us and search for us and even lay down his life to save us. Um, that's what the Psalm 100 tells us again. We're his people. We're the sheep of his pasture. Verse 5 says, the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever. His faithfulness to all generations. You can't 
put a cap on his love. There's no limit on his faithfulness. There's nothing he won't do in order to save us. There's no point at which he says, you know, yeah, I'm out. Which is why even the cross didn't sidetrack him. You want to know the extent of God's steadfast love? You want to know the extent of his faithfulness? It looks like this. We're even told in Hebrews that, that it was the joy that was set before Jesus. The joy of anticipating our forgiveness and reunion and reconciliation with him, having us home. It was the joy set before him that helped him endure the cross and scorn its shame. So that you and I could stop you know, looking for our joy and our happiness in, in created things and find it in the Creator who's forever praised. Like eternity will be little enough to praise Him. We won't be able to get it out. We'll, we'll, we'll go for an eternity and we'll still say, do we have more time? Peter describes what it means to, to, to get this, to connect these dots. He says, though you have not seen Him, you love Him. And though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Uh, you know, you might put it this way. The gospel is God getting the last laugh of your sin and death and Satan. God getting the last laugh and inviting us to laugh with him and to enter into the joy of our master. Do you want this joy? Do you want more of this joy? Are you struggling to, to get in on this joy? Yeah, I know that, that in this world you will have trouble. Jesus promised us that. It's not like in order to, to you know, the opposite of mature Christianity is, is, is not to, to paint implacable plastic smiles on our faces. Like, we're not supposed to do the opposite of American Gothic, you know, like this. There's a full range of emotions, and we get it. But fundamentally, there's a, there's, there's a foundation of joy in disciples of Jesus. Do you want more of that? If, you, if this is brand new to you, and you're just going, yes, I want to get in on that. I, I don't understand that. I need that. Or if you're going, yeah, I get it, but I want more of it. The paths are identical. We, we all have the same path, whether this is your first time in on, this, on the kingdom or you've been in the kingdom for a long time, the path is the same, and it's ongoing repentance and faith. It's an old path, one that, that, that joy seekers have been trotting for centuries. The Heidelberg Catechism that we, we read earlier says, what must you know to live and die in the joy of this comfort, you know, that I'm not my own, that, that I'm loved by my Father in heaven, and there's not a hair that's going to fall from my head without his, his purposes, and all things are working together for my good. And the answer to number two is, you know, you got to know three things. You got to know that, look, my, my sin and misery are great, and, and I've been, you know, trying to find joy in, you know, things that aren't ultimate, or I've even been looking for joy in bad things, and that I'm set free from all my sins and misery through Jesus, and how I'm to thank God for such deliverance. So, so what does that look like for us? Here, just take, take these home, stick them in your back pocket, and 
hopefully our joy can grow. We need to repent of assuming that God is distant and dour and believe that he is joyfully pursuing you. Believe that. Believe that he is joyfully pursuing you. Second, repent of seeking joy outside his gates and come into his courts with praise. Believe that. Pursue that. Work on that. Lastly, repent of thinking that Jesus wants his followers to, to look like this. Start believing that, that grace has a grand laughter in it. Let's do that together, all right? Let's pray. Lord, we give you thanks for the gospel of, of joy and, and happiness in heaven. Thank you for the good news that you are a joyful God. Um, that's not all you are, but fundamentally, uh, you are a God who's, who's happy, eternally so, and that heaven is a place where your joy uh, goes on forever. We thank you for inviting us into that joy, for calling us out of the, uh, the things that ruin that joy, uh, the sinful pursuits that um, may bring a, a, a sort of false or, or a caricature of that joy, but in the end, it's just dry and it evaporates. So Lord, like that younger brother, call us home. Um, call us into the celebration and the joy of, of, of being uh, in, back in your family. And Lord, for those uh, who have never experienced this, this true joy connected to you, uh, to find it through Jesus, Lord, show them. Uh, show them this path that, uh, that we pray we would all be more faithful uh, to walk on. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, yeah, that's just, that's the clue. That's it. Go go ahead. <laughs> uh, yeah, my name's Essen. I'm new here. I haven't seen you guys in a while. Good to be back. Um, hey, about 150 years ago, um, eight, 1876, I think, was the first public demonstration of one of these. Uh, not a cell phone, but a phone. Uh, Alexander Graham Bell and invented the telephone. That's why, you know, a long time ago, some of you remember paying a telephone bill to an organization called Bell Atlantic or, you know, Bell South or something like that, named after Alexander Graham Bell. Um, in that demonstration to the American Academy of Arts and Sciences, the, the first sounds that, that came through a, a phone wasn't a voice that, you know, Watson, come here, I need you, was like, in the office, that was, that was private. But the, the pu first public demonstration of a phone was this sound. Do you know that tune? It's our doxology. That tune was written in the 1500s by a guy named Louis Bourgeois for the Genevan Psalter. And it was Psalm 100, you know, that was, that was put to verse and was played uh, in churches all around, you know, Calvin's Geneva and throughout the Reformation because the commitment of, the, of our fathers and mothers way back then was we need to sing. We need to sing praise to God in 
words that are our own language, right? You know, whether it was happened to be French or German or, or English or whatever, not Latin chanting, um, you know, by somebody else. And nobody understood what the words were. They wanted to, to, to enter God's courts with their own praises, right? Um, straight out of, of Psalm 100. So that's, that's our text this morning. If you want to turn there and, uh, and stand in honor of God's word. Uh, and let me, um, let me read to you these uh, five verses, a short psalm, but really important. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with singing. Know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us and we are his. We are his people, the sheep of his pasture. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him, bless his name. For the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever and his faithfulness to all generations. Let me pray for us. Lord, we, we do confess that you are good. Your steadfast love endures throughout all generations. Um, you are faithful forever. And therefore, we, we ought to praise you. It is good and right for us to enter your, your courts and, and your gates with thanksgiving. Uh, Lord, would you be honored uh, as, we, as we give our ears and our minds and our hearts uh, attention to you and your word this morning. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. So um, if, if you're a guest, or, or, or I guess if you've been around even the past three weeks, we're, we're kind of getting back on the horse. Um, we're doing this series on 20 chapters of redemptive history, 20 chapters in the Old Testament that tell the story um, leading up to Jesus, like how God was setting the stage for that fullness of redemption and salvation that we have through him. Psalm 100 is the only psalm that we're doing in this series. And you might wonder, well, why are, if we're going to do only one psalm, why, why is it Psalm 100? Why not Psalm 23? That's a kind of an important psalm, right? Yes, it is. And, and we could do that or we could do many other psalms. Uh, but we're, we're doing Psalm 100 because it's so important. It's such a significant psalm. Not just because it's significant compared to the other psalms. It's not just the most significant chapter of the Psalter, but it's a significant chapter in the Bible because it tells us so much about who God is and what he wants for us as, as his image bearers. Um, the reason why it's, it's, a, it's a great psalm is because it's a joyful psalm, right? I mean, we noticed that. Did you know that the majority of the psalms are actually psalms that deal with negative emotions, you know, sadness and anger and fear, those sorts of things. So it's nice when we come across a joyful psalm, we kind of pay attention and we, we, we give our attention to that. But, but more than that, what it does is it tells us about our chief end. Psalm 100 uh, addresses one of the biggest challenges that, <clears throat> that we face as Christians. Our, our, our biggest challenges aren't from out there. Our, our biggest enemies to our faith and oppositions to, to Christianity don't come from out there, they come from in here in our own hearts, and our own assumptions about who God is and what he wants for us. And, and we, we end up making God in our image rather than, you know, recognizing he's made us in his image. And one of the things that, that, that we do is we make these assumptions, right? We assume uh, that God 
is, is not involved. We, we assume he's distant. We assume he's aloof, maybe, um, and, and doesn't have anything to do with this earth because why, why would he? I mean, what God, you know, little g, uh, in, in its right mind, would want to have anything to do with this world? I mean, you've watched the news, right? I mean, look at all of the mess that's going on on this planet. Why would, would God bother? So we make these assumptions about a God who's either aloof and distant, uh, or, or if, he's, if he is involved, he's not happy, he's angry and you know, um, irritated by everything that's going on down here. And we just sort of make, make a, an assumption that if we're going to be his worshipers, if we're going to follow God, then uh, we probably ought to be like him in being aloof and angry as well and unhappy, right? We sort of feel like if you're going to be a serious Christian, you have to look like these people, right? Because this is what serious Christianity looks like. Uh, this is a painting that I th I'm pretty sure you recognize uh, this was painted by Grant Wood in 1930. It's called American Gothic. Even, even the, the, the name of the painting gives you a clue about what's being depicted. American religion. Um, the, the, the Gothic you know, language comes from the window that's, that's in, uh, that you can see in the house. It's a real house, uh, by the way. Grant Wood was driving through a little town in Iowa and he saw this farmhouse and he said, I got to paint that. that. That house, just in his mind, it, the house itself is an oxymoron. It's just a plain old farmer's house in the middle of Iowa. You know, nothing fancy about middle of Iowa. And in this house on the second floor is a Gothic style window. Kind of, you know, arched, pointy windows that you see in these cathedrals in Europe. And Wood was a I think a uh, trained in Paris, I don't know, European trained, you know, painter. So he would see these cathedrals, he would see these, you know, beautiful buildings and these, these windows, and, and then, you know, there in the middle of Iowa, he sees a Gothic-style window on a farmhouse, he's going, what kind of weirdness is that? Um, and we see this painting, you've seen it, I've seen it, and, and it depicts, you know, this farmer, you know, with his pitchfork, and um, I used to think it was his wife, you probably think it's his wife too, guess what, that's his oldest daughter. It's the farmer's oldest daughter, and she's kind of depicted as a spinster, right? Like um, the old guy, he doesn't look like he's got a whole lot of jazz going on, and neither does she. And, uh, and, and this is, you know, breadbasket religion, American Gothic. Uh, they even sort of, they even look like they, they, they look clerical. He's wearing his overalls, but he's got his, his jacket, his nice jacket over it, like they're going to church maybe. Or it could, he almost looks like he's the preacher, you know, with, with some kind of robe on and he's got a collar that's buttoned up. You notice the collar, it almost looks like one of those Anglican or Episcopal collars that, the, that those priests wear. Um, and she looks like she's heading to the, the nunnery or something like that. Um, so this is this assumption about God. This is this assumption on display about the worshipers of God, that if you're going to be serious about your Christianity, then you better be serious. You better be unhappy. <laughs> and you better be grumpy and you better you know, be a little bit aloof. Um, 
You know, it's really interesting that the reaction to this painting, um, uh, you know it, and, and it's famous by now, um, when, when Grant Wood painted it, he entered it into an art competition in Chicago at, um, what, at the Art Institute of Chicago. He won third prize. He won a bronze medal and 300 bucks. And then the word got out about this painting and it started being published in all these newspapers. You know, it was in the Indianapolis Star and, the, and, and, and migrated east and ended up in the New York Times. And then it ended up in, back in good old Iowa too. The, the, the good people in Iowa heard about it and it was printed in the Cedar Rapids Gazette. And the Iowans were not happy about this painting. Would you be? These are your people, right? Are, are these your people? Is that an accurate depiction of your people? They were upset. They were furious at their description as, quote, pinched, grim-faced, puritanical Bible thumpers. And, you know, that's what people assume. That's what people assume about God. That's what people assume about serious God followers, is that if you're going to worship God, this is the kind of people that you're going to be. Are those assumptions accurate? <clears throat> is, that, is that legitimate? Is it valid to think that God expects, God's distant and dour and he expects his worshipers to be kind of pickled and persnickety? Is that right? That's not what Psalm 100 is saying. And, and instead of just making assumptions about God and what he wants for us, we are so much better off going to his own revealed word and reading places like Psalm 100 that set the record straight about who God is. God, I mean, Psalm 100 is not the uh, you know, end-all, be-all for uh, who God is, it's, but it is an accurate window. It gives us a good depiction, uh, and it teaches us about what he wants for us, that God is actually a joyful God who, yes, does want his followers to be like him, but if God's joyful, then what does that mean about his followers? He, he, he wants joyful followers too. This is our chief end as, as we've described it, as our fathers and mothers have described it. Our Westminster Shorter Catechism asks, what is the chief end of man? And um, you know, our fathers and mothers long time ago put it like this, man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. On the bottom of uh, the, the front of the bulletin is our purpose statement. By God's grace, tabernacle exists for the enjoyment of his glory. That's a deliberate echo to hundreds of years of men and women and boys and girls who have faithfully agreed with Psalm 100 that by God's grace, he has called us into a joyful relationship with him, a happy, eternal relationship with a happy God. Um, you know, the, there's, a, there's a shorter catechism and there's a larger catechism. So the larger catechism's larger. It's got more words. And the larger catechism, question number one, is what is the chief and highest end of man? So now you've got not only chief, but highest. And the answer is man's chief and highest end is to glorify God and fully to enjoy him forever. In case you missed in the shorter catechism, he wants full joy in him, right? This is, our, this is why we're here. This is our purpose on this planet is to live in a joyful relationship with our Creator and our Redeemer and then to spread it, spread that joy and tell, people, tell other people about how to have a joyful relationship with them. To, to be age, recipients and agents of that 
beauty and that joy and that goodness that, that we summarize as the gospel. So in Psalm 100, we look at verse 3, and, and we're told this is that kind of God. This is who God is. Know that the Lord, the covenant-keeping, joyful God, He is God. It is He who made us, and we're His, and we're His people. We're the sheep of his pasture. So the Lord, the, the, the covenant God Yahweh is the one who is worthy of joy and gladness. And he's our creator. He, we're his workmanship. Ephesians 2 even goes so far as to say we're his poetry. Like he doesn't just make us as an aside. He doesn't just make, uh, fashion us because he was bored. Like he joyfully made us. He joyfully made all things as, as a work of craftsmanship and with care and with, with, with you know, his dignity and value instilled. In a, and, and we see why he made us earlier here in, in Psalm 100, verses 1 and 2, tell us that he made us so that we would make a joyful noise to the Lord. So we, we would be about a ministry, a, a service to the Lord that's joyful. In verse 2, that we would serve the Lord, minister to the Lord with gladness that we would come into his presence to worship him with singing, with, with an overflowing heart. That's why he made us. God didn't make us with the thought that we should be miserable. He didn't make you and me to be unhappy. His purposes for us is that we would find joy in a relationship with him. You and I, and as we sang earlier, all people that on earth do dwell should come before him and rejoice. I had one of those moments, I can't remember where I was, but I remember, I remember hearing this sound and going, that's it. <clears throat> that's, that's a connection with what I'd heard about. Maybe you've heard about it too, um, the, the, the question goes like this, what's the saddest sound on earth? What's the saddest sound on earth? And, and, and maybe there can be, you know, a, a few, few options that could compete to be the saddest sound on earth, but I think you can make an incredibly strong argument that the sound of saddest sound on earth is a, is a desperate child crying. And I can't remember where I was or, or you know, what the context was, but I, just, I, I remember hearing that cry and going, that's it. That's what they were talking about. That's the saddest sound. And pity those parents who for all their efforts can't alleviate the crying of that child, right? Like that just tears your soul. When we, when we see a child crying and we can't do anything about it, like that just pains you, right? That's the saddest sound on earth. Flip that around and you can ask yourself, well, what's the happiest sound on earth? Isn't it laughter? Isn't it the exact opposite? Isn't, isn't that the, the happiest sound on earth? I mean, if... If, if um, when we think about Adam and, and Eve and, and leaving Eden and, and all that got broke, 
you know, in creation at their initial fall. Everything that went wrong, everything that's not the way it's supposed to be anymore. When you think about when they left Eden, that's when crying entered the world. Um, God created everything. He, he created it with joy. He created it to be good, and, and he blessed it, and it was beautiful. Uh, and, and then when the fall happened, creation got corrupted. And, and you've, you've heard us talk about this multiple times, I know. But if you're new here, here's, here's a thought to consider. Did you know that, that Satan can't create anything? Only God has the power to create. And then Satan comes along and the best he can do, his, the worst you know, he can do, is just to corrupt what God created. Satan can't create anything in his own right. All he can do is corrupt it. And isn't that what crying is, is a corruption of our laughter? There's a lot of overlap between laughing and crying. And sin is what you know, has broke our laughter and turned it into crying. Um, Marilyn Robinson wrote a book, a novel called Gilead, um, and the first person narrator is, is a pastor. <clears throat> and he's making these observations of, of the world. And if you've ever read Gilead, it's got some brilliant observations in it. This is one of them. Grace has a grand laughter in it. Like when you think about grace, when you think about God's activity in the world, it has a grand laughter in it. It is an amazing thing to watch people laugh. The way it sort of takes them over. Sometimes they really do struggle with it. I see that in church often enough, right? Because you're not supposed to laugh in church. Stop laughing. You know, don't, right? You know, so this, this uh, fictional pastor is, is reflecting on laughter. I see that in church often enough. Like people struggle to, to contain it. They can't not laugh if something kind of just gets them. And they just can't stop. And so I wonder what it is and where it comes from. And I wonder what it expands out of your system so that you have to do it till you're done. Like crying in a way, except that laughter is much more easily spent. It takes longer to get the crying out. So laughter is this original beautiful, good creation of a, a happy God. Laughter is a gift. It's an invention from him. He made us to laugh. And if we're made in the image of God, then what does that tell us about God's capacity for joy? What does that tell us about the nature of heaven? One of heaven's promises, right, is that there'll be no more tears, no more crying, no more pain, no more death and revelation. Have you ever thought about how much joy and laughter there must be in heaven? Do you ever think about what eternity is going to be like? Where you're not worrying about feeling silly or looking awkward by laughing? Listen to Jesus talk about his purposes for us in John 15. These things I've spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. John Piper wrote a book years ago with a very provocative title called The Pleasures of God. 
Like for some people, that's a, that's a revelation right there in and of itself. What, God, God experiences pleasure? What? Because they're you know, operating under the assumption that God's stoic and distant and doesn't feel anything, you know, right? Or if he does, it's anger. No, the, the pleasures of God. And in that he writes, a great part of God's glory is his happiness. It was inconceivable to the Apostle Paul that God could be denied infinite joy and still be all glorious. To be infinitely glorious was to be infinitely happy. It is good news that God is gloriously happy because no one would want to spend an eternity with an unhappy God, right? I wouldn't. Would you? So amen to that. This is what, this is what when, we, when we go to the Bible, instead of relying on our assumptions and just, you know, cultural impressions about who God is and what he wants from us, when we go to the source, we realize, oh, there's some surprises here. Some really good surprises about who God is and what he wants for us. But there's also a problem. There's a problem here. <clears throat> Maybe you've already picked up on it, but if not, let me, um, let me, let me quote to you a couple of places from uh, something I would love for everybody in this church to read, and it's, um, it's an address by C.S. Lewis called A Word About Praising. It was a sermon that he gave, and it's in a collection of, of uh, a book that he's wrote about the Psalms. And so this is one chapter in this book about the, the Psalms, and, and this chapter is called A Word About Praising. And, and, he, and, he, and he's looking at places like Psalm 100, verse 2, serve the Lord with gladness, come into his presence with singing, and Verse 4, enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him, bless his name, right? So those, that, those are great verses. We love those verses. But listen to what Lewis says about verses, those verses and verses like them. When I first began to draw near to belief in God and even for some time after it had been given to me, I found a stumbling block in the demand so clamorously made by all religious people that we should praise God. And still more in the suggestion that God himself demanded it. The Psalms were especially troublesome in this way. It was, it was hideously like saying, quote, what I most want is to be told that I am good and great. <laughs> and Lewis says, it was extremely distressing to read the Psalms and hear God clamorously demanding, what I want most is to be told I'm good and great, right? Is that, is that what the Psalms are saying? Why does God command us to praise him? Why does he need us to tell him how wonderful he is, right? Can you imagine? Can you, can you imagine people's reactions to you if, 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 if Psalm 100 was about you? If, if Psalm 100 was about me, let's, let's just re, rewrite these verses here just for the sake of argument. What if verse 2, and, and it was about me, serve me with gladness, come into my presence with, with singing. Verse 4, enter my gates with thanksgiving and my courts with praise. Give thanks to me and bless my name, right? Have you ever met someone like that? 
That's crazy talk. And you would be in your right mind to run, right? Run as fast as you can from that person. But we don't. <clears throat> the weird thing is we, we don't run away from them. We run to them. We, we do this. We, we question the sanity of the person who demands such uh, praise and, and adoration, but we voluntarily give it to, to people you know, around us. I mean, that's what every single love song that's ever been written is about, is, is the, the, the lover coming to his or her beloved and singing their praises. Hopefully they're not doing that in response to a demand. <laughs> and we do that, um, you know, in all kinds of settings. Like, how many um, NBA and Wimbledon fans enter into those courts with praise, right? How many NASCAR and PGA fans praise the name of their favorite driver, right? NASCAR and PGA, favorite driver. You see what I did there? All right, you can think about that if, if you're going, huh? We can't help it. We can't help it because we're made to worship. We're made to, we're made to find our joy outside of ourselves. We can't help it. We're creatures, and we're designed that way. And God is ultimately calling us to find that joy in him. So back to Lewis, right? So he's saying, I was, I was terribly vexed. <laughs> Didn't understand what this language is all about. And he goes, but here's what I came to discover. The most obvious fact about praise, whether of God or anything, strangely escaped me. The world rings with praise. Praise of weather, wine, food, actors, motors, horses, colleges, countries, historical personages, children, flowers, musicians, mountains, rare stamps, rare beetles, and sometimes politicians or scholars. I had not noticed how the humblest and at the same time most balanced and most capacious minds praised most, right? They were the quickest to praise, while the, the cranks and misfits and malcontents praised least. Except where intolerably adverse circumstances interfere, praise almost seems to be inner health made audible. It's a sign of a healthy soul, somebody who is generous with his or her praise. And somebody who's stingy with that, there's something wrong with them. That's what Lewis was observing. So, therefore, he says, my whole more general difficulty about the praise of God depended on my absurdly denying to us as regards the supremely valuable, you know, God, denying to us as regards God what we delight to do, indeed what we can't help doing about everything else we value. Why wouldn't we value God that much or more, right? So it is healthy to praise what is praiseworthy. And if you don't, there's something kind of broken in you. So what happens, though, 
if we end up praising what is only mediocre, or what happens when we end up praising what's bad? What if, what if we give all our praise to what is good, but, but ignore what's best? This is where God's call to praise him is merciful and kind. It's not narcissism. It's not egomania. It's glory and mercy all wrapped up into one. Where God is calling us not to give all of our praise to what's mediocre. He's not calling, he doesn't want us to give our praise to what's bad for sure. He doesn't want us to miss what's ultimate. Like, like this is mercy. God is truly the highest holiness. He's the greatest good. He's the best and most beautiful being. And he's saying, give me what you were made for. Give me your praise and your joy and your happiness. And if you don't, it's like, it's like leaving to go get popcorn. Popcorn's a good thing. It's like leaving to go get popcorn. You go down to the concession stand and your team scores the winning goal. What, what happened? I missed it. Or it's like, you know, you're really hungry. And so you're reaching for something. I don't know. Just give me the give me the saltines, you know. And then somebody comes in and says, "Hey, we're off to the gourmet buffet." Oh, sorry, I'm full. This is God's mercy to us, calling us to to praise Him because He's the ultimate good. He's the the best thing, the one that the thing that will never disappoint us if we give our joy and our happiness to Him. Right. So. Our situation is not, uh, it's not simply that we might be missing out on, on genuine joy, you know, if God didn't call us into his courts to praise him. Like, that's a kindness and it's a mercy to us. But our, our actual fallen and finite situation is that God calls us and we ignore him, <laughs> He calls us into his courts, and we go, no, thank you. A great part of our sin is our refusal to find our joy in what God finds joyful. It's our refusal to laugh with God. We, we, we think we're too grown up for that. We're too sophisticated to, to find joy in what he finds joy in. You know, um, part of us is, is stubbornly refusing to laugh along with God because we think there's more joy outside of his gates than in them. And this is where uh, I'm, I'm grateful to Ben Spivey for preaching last week on Luke 15 and talking about the prodigal son because that's exactly what the prodigal son did, right? He thought he would find more joy outside of his father's presence than in the father's house. And he went off and he squandered everything. And then you see the reaction of the father. Well, fine, you know. Write him off, he's dead to me, blah, blah, blah. No. Psalm 100 tells us what God's like. Know that the Lord, he is God. He made us, we're his people. He's not gonna give up on us, we're his sheep. And the good shepherd goes out looking after his sheep and, and the Lord is good and his steadfast love endures forever and his faithfulness to all generations. The gospel tells us that God rejoices to have us home again. 
that it was the joy that, that was before him that caused Jesus to endure the cross and the scorn and shame. You want to know how the, the limits of God's faithfulness, you want to know what, the, what the, 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 the capacity for his steadfast love is? It looks like this, with his outstretched arms on a cross. There is no limit. There is no maximum to his steadfast love. And it gives him joy to save us. And when we get that, we start entering into that joy too. First Peter 1 says, though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Quick aside, that's not to say that the, the antidote to this is for us to look like this all the time. I'm a happy Christian. I'm only a happy Christian. I always am a happy Christian. That's, that's, that's not what we're talking about here. We are talking about a baseline, a foundation of joy of being reconciled to God, of having your sins forgiven, of knowing that he wants you home with him. And yeah, Jesus said that, look, in this world, you're going to have troubles. Yes, you're going to bear burdens. Yes, you're going to cry with those who cry. You're going to weep with those who weep. And, but you're going to be free to do those things because your joy isn't threatened. You don't have to pretend. You know where it is. We can always go back there. The gospel is God getting the last laugh over sin and death and despair and inviting us to laugh with him, to enter into the joy of your master. Do you want this joy? Have you ever heard of this joy? Like, is this new for you? The idea that God's a happy God and he wants you to be happy? I'm not talking about prosperity gospel stuff. I'm talking about that baseline of a, of a relationship that was restored where he invites you to laugh with him about what's genuinely good and beautiful and true. And if that's brand new to you, you can have it. What about the rest of us? You know these things, and you're going, oh, it's good to be reminded. It's good. Do you want more of that joy? If this is the first time you've, you're connecting these dots or if you've been around the block for a while, you know, we all have the same well-trod path to follow. And we're following our fathers and mothers who have gone before us in radical pursuit of that joy. To glorify God and enjoy him forever. The Heidelberg Catechism that we read earlier says, what must you know to live and die in the joy of this comfort? Three things, right? First, yeah, I do have great sin and misery because I go looking for joy outside of his gates instead of in them. And I need to turn from that. And then I'm set free from my sin and misery because Jesus, for the joy set before him, endured the cross and scorned at shame because of his steadfast love. And third, how I am to thank God for such deliverance. Don't forget, live in the active present tense of this joy. 
three things and we're done. Look, if you want to grow, if you want to, to, to go deeper into this joy like I do, and we're all trying to do this together, we've got to keep repenting of, his, in, of, of our assumptions that God is far away and he is not happy. God's close, he's near, and he is joyfully pursuing you. Second, repent of seeking our joy outside of his presence, outside of his house. You know, the, the prodigal son story ends with the older brother, right? The father goes out to him, you got to come, come on in. You know, this brother, is, he, he was dead and he's alive and, and he's lost and he's found. And we, ha- we had to make merry. This is the father talking about his joy. We had to. And that's where the parable ends. What did the older brother do? Did he come in or did he stay out in the field? Will you come in? Will you stay out in the field? And lastly, repenting of thinking that Jesus wants his followers to look like this. Instead, you know, thinking about, look, my life can actually glorify God as I rejoice in the Lord and as I try to be an agent of that joy for others, to, to let people in on the grace that has a grand laughter in it. Let's pray. Lord, we give you thanks for the gospel, for good news, for glorious news, uh, happy news, joyful news, that you are a, a joyful God and that you are pursuing us and saving us uh, so that we might enter into your joy and we might participate in a joyful relationship with you. Lord, thank you for all the the good things in our lives and in our world that do bring us joy, but would you forgive us for making them ultimate things? And would you forgive us for when we try to find our joy in in things that are broken and bad? Lord, instead, we we look to Jesus. Thank you for forgiving our sins. Thank you for uh, setting us back on this this old path uh, to, to glorify you, to find our joy in you, and to look forward to an eternity where there's nothing but laughter. Lord, increase that laughter now, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.